mesmo sentido. Welcome back to the AIAC podcast. My name is William Shockey, and you are listening to this, which is supposed to be Africa's a country's weekly destination for analysis of current events, culture, and sports in the African continent and its diaspora from the left. But it hasn't been weekly. So my New Year's resolution is to try as far as possible to make this weekly. And one way we're going to do that is by featuring other podcasts on our platform. In this respect, Africa as a Country is proud to present a new collaboration with the South African podcast, Just Us Under a Tree, which is one of many to come. And once a month, we will host an episode of Just Us Under a Tree, which is mostly about the Constitutional Court of South Africa. Returning from a long hiatus, its goal is to make it easier to talk about the law and read the news. On this episode, Tanvia Jiwa, Dan Mafora, Johan Lorenzen, and Elisha Kunene host international human rights law and children's rights expert Brian Fox to unpack the recent ruling of the International Court of Justice on South Africa's request for provisional orders against Israel under the Genocide Convention. I hope you will enjoy. Madam President, members of the court, in conclusion, I share with you two photographs. The first is of a whiteboard at a hospital in northern Gaza, one of the many Palestinian hospitals targeted, besieged, and bombed by Israel over the course of the past three brutal months. The whiteboard is wiped clean of no longer possible surgical cases, leaving only a handwritten message by a Médecins Sans Frontières doctor which reads, we did what we could. Remember us. The second photograph is of the same whiteboard after an Israeli strike on the hospital on the 21st of November that killed the author of the message, Dr. Mahmoud Abu Nujela, along with two of his colleagues. Just over a month later, in a powerful sermon delivered from a church in Bethlehem on Christmas Day, the same day Israel had killed 250 Palestinians, including at least 86 people, many from the same family, massacred in a single strike on Magazi refugee camp. Palestinian pastor Munzer Ishak addressed his congregation and the world, and he said, and I quote, Gaza as we know it no longer exists. This is an annihilation. This is a genocide. We will rise. We will stand up again from the midst of destruction, as we have always done as Palestinians, though this is by far maybe the biggest blow we have received. But he said, no apologies will be accepted after the genocide. What has been done has been done. I want you to look in the mirror and ask, where was I when Gaza was going through a genocide? South Africa is here before this court in the Peace Palace. It has done what it could. It is doing what it can by initiating these proceedings, by seeking interim measures against itself as well as against Israel. South Africa now respectfully and humbly calls on this honorable court to do what is in its power to do to indicate the provisional measures that are so urgently required to prevent further irreparable harm 
to the Palestinian people in Gaza, whose hopes, including for their very survival, are now vested in this court. Okay, welcome back, friends, under, under this tree. We have a full deck of hosts on, on today. I'm Johan, as always. Today we have um, Dan here. Hi, everyone. Elisha's here. Hey, friends. And we have Tanvir here to host. Hello, everyone. And we are joined by a special expert guest, Brian E. Fox, who's an LLD candidate in children's rights and international law at the at Stellenbosch University. And today we are brought back together by South Africa's important and urgent challenge to the genocide of Palestinians currently happening. And, and thank you very much, Tanvir, our in-house international law expert for, <laughs> for being willing to host. And I'll hand, hand over to you. Thanks, Johan. I see we're throwing the word expert generously around when it comes to me. But what I did want to say is it's really good to be back and it's good to be back about a very important topic. Full transparency and disclaimer, we have tried to shoot this episode more than once, including yesterday where we thought we did an excellent job only to find out that it was recording Sabotage. for a whole of seven seconds. So we're not saying in, that anyone's sabotaging us, but we're not not saying that anyone's ever <laughs> Now that we've got that out of the way, I think let's get started with just trying to contextualize what's going on, because this is obviously quite a big case. All of us have more or less heard about it, but we're trying to figure out the legal aspects of the horrific things that have been unfold, unfolding in front of us. And maybe we can start there with Bryony. What is happening in Gaza, obviously this has been going on for decades now, but there must be something quite different that's taken us in front of the ICJ this year. All right. So as you said, this has happened for many, many years, 70 plus years. But what we've seen is in the past 16 years with an increased occupation of Gaza, that the violence and sort of uh, inhumane acts have been increasing year on year. And in 2023, we saw an increase um, sort of hostilities both from Israel as well as Hamas, uh, culminating in what everyone now knows as the October 7th attacks, where 1,200 people were killed. But then what happened was Israel responded in the most brutal and immense military operation in modern history. And those are the words used by the UN uh, to describe what has happened. And so what we've seen over the last 100 plus days is that um, continuum bombardment of the area. We've seen um, the killing of... Uh, 25,000 plus people, the injury of 100,000 plus people. We've seen the displacement of 1.2 million out of 2 million people in the Gaza area. And we've seen the withholding of water, electricity, gas, aid, resulting in what can only be described as a humanitarian crisis of epic proportion. And so what happened here now is that South Africa saw this and they said, we cannot let this go on. And so they did what they thought was the only way we could stop the horrors that they were witnessing, having witnessed several failed attempts in other UN organs to stop the massacres by bringing this case to the ICJ. And that sort of is how we got to this case. 
Yeah, I think you've touched on something interesting, the fact that South Africa obviously was the one to bring the case to the ICJ. And I think it brings up a lot of different points, but also a lot of pride. And I'm sure in many South Africans, you know, being the child of apartheid and then being the one to actually stand up to power and bringing the case to the ICJ. But interestingly, bringing the case under the Genocide Convention, right? And I think a lot of people, especially in international law, was probably familiar with different, you know, statutes as well, treaties under which we could bring the case. But I'm wondering why the Genocide Convention, and maybe let me bring this to Dan, if you have Mm -hmm. any thoughts on, you know, why the Genocide Convention, why not different treaties? Right. So I think uh, as a starting point, it was a strategic choice, right? And in particular, the request for the indication of provisional measures, because that the court treats as an urgent matter and can render, as we have seen, uh, a a fully-fledged decision in about two weeks' time, I think. And I think that's one of the reasons. Yesterday, we spoke about how, you know, some of the, the violations that are happening in Gaza that are being committed by Israel are covered by other treaties like uh, the Geneva Conventions, but that as a, as, as a strategic move, the choice to invoke um, the mandatory jurisdiction of the ICJ uh, was a very smart move of bringing an urgency to the matter to ensure that there is something that is being done as you know the situation kind of unravels and as as conditions continue to deteriorate and i thought that the choice of the genocide convention is also obviously quite significant for another reason as we know the genocide convention is brought uh, or comes into into existence after or as a response to to the holocaust and to have israel have it invoked against it and its conduct is something that that is morally significant, but we, we will we will touch on that later. Uh, but I also thought it was really impressive how the South African case was argued within just like the parameters of the court's own precedents, right? Um, and what it has said, um, and how it has, especially in the last, uh, I want to say, four years in the uh, Myanmar case, the Gambia versus Myanmar, and the Ukraine versus Russia case. Um, I thought it was an inspired uh, kind of case um, and the way that it was presented. Yeah, thank you. I think also there was, you've pointed out really good things because I think there was some skepticism about the genocide convention, namely the fact that a lot of people seem to think that the threshold of genocide is has not been met and that that threshold is very, very high. But Again, in our sabotaged quote-unquote attempt yesterday, as we were discussing in terms of the Genocide Convention, is that the whole point of the Genocide Convention is to stop a genocide. So it, it becomes kind of disingenuous to hold that high threshold as a bar to find that what's, on, what's going on is possibly either going to quickly turn into a genocide or already of genocidal proportions. And the way in which we're talking about that is we mentioned yesterday what happened in Srebrenica and um, obviously in the in the former Yugoslavia region, which is that the genocide happened overnight in Srebrenica. And it's something that there was mounting pressure 
people had been raising the alarm about how the genocide will be happening because there are telltale signs of genocide usually, as we've seen in Rwanda as well, but that ICJ failed to actually take any action. So I think a lot of us were pleasantly surprised by the ICJ outcome. And maybe before we get to the ICJ action, you know, like the, the measures, we can actually talk about what measures South Africa was asking for and why these provisional measures, Franny? So if we were to sum up what South Africa were asking for, essentially they wanted a complete halt of all military action or in what has become known as the ceasefire, right, as well as an increased access to humanitarian aid. And what we got was not quite a full-on ceasefire. And the South Africans' reasoning was that without a ceasefire, without stopping the total bombardment of Israel, of Gaza, we were going to basically result in a genocide, right? And through their actions, by bombing the hospitals, by destroying schools and mosques and museums and all places of culture, heritage, anything important for living a daily life in the area, they were essentially mm. committing genocide. Yeah. And I think it's something that you've mentioned that a lot of people have been alluding to on Twitter, but not necessarily the lawyers. It's so important to 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 know that we're witnessing the epistemes out of a culture, right? Museums mm -hmm. are, are being bombed. They are, Israel is trying to erase the trace of Palestinians living in their country. And this has been ongoing for years now, but we're seeing it even more. And sadly, I think this also relates to your area of expertise, Brani. We're seeing that a lot of people are having to leave Gaza. A lot of people can't leave Gaza at all. Let's just start there, right? It's impossible mm. to leave Gaza, let alone because of the borders and everything going on in Israel. But also in addition to that, the fact that there are extremely high thresholds to be able to be admitted to different countries once you are from Gaza, you're almost automatically labeled as either a member of Hamas or a supporter of Hamas. As South Africans will know, you have also been labeled as the legislative arm and and you know judicial arm of Gaza, um, of Hamas. So we are here. So mm -hmm. beyond that, talking about the epistemicide that's ongoing in Gaza and a lot of people struggling to leave Gaza, but the people who do leave Gaza, I think we do have to remember that they are leaving also as they are in exile now. And it yeah, now takes yeah. another dimension of the ability to come back as well, which is obviously extremely ironic when put next to the right of return, that people who have never mm -hmm. been in Israel, let alone be from Israel, they are allowed to go back. So that's just something to quickly touch on as a side note when it comes to the history of Gaza and um, and Israel. But you mentioned the C word, Bryony, ceasefire. <laughs> We've obviously seen a lack of the C word in the order and in the judgment. Eli, Dan, Johan, any thoughts on why we don't see the C word and what it means? Yeah, so I think this is why, you know, the emergency relief that the relief regime that South Africa had asked for was very well crafted and in, in responding to the moment. Uh, and because you didn't, and you didn't realize that a lot of the international law conversations around Israel's war against like Hamas have actually been misplaced because quite typically when you talk about 
the scale of damage which is suffered by civilians and how the militaries are supposed to conduct themselves. Uh, typically, you know, people have notions about uh, and debates about things like proportionality and just war theory and all of the sorts of like norms and expectations around war crimes that would be like embodied in the Geneva Conventions generally but in this instance the distinction in this case is as was sort of uh, discussed in the hearings is firstly that israel doesn't have an actual right to self-defense as you would have uh, typically have under international law because they're not at war with another state but actually that they are occupying the territory of gaza and so as an occupying power it's actually them who have a duty of care towards the, 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 the civilians of Gaza, which makes, you know, uh, their behaviors, their uh, patterns, like particularly worrying, uh, mm. like mining buildings, destroying them, bombing every single hospital, every school, every sort of like refugee camp, and claiming that as exercising a right to self-defense as an occupying power is something they want, which is absolutely unjustified in that instance, but also because the, the genocide convention being like a, a, a regime which is categorically like prohibits the sorts of actions that is Israel is 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 carrying out not an, a, 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 not an ability to uh, do a little bit of genocide or mm. a, a, a fair amount of genocide in response to a particularly gruesome uh, atrocities there can be no justification there can be no compromising and that's why it was reasonable and fair in that context to, re to request the immediate withdrawal of like the Israeli military's activities from Gaza completely, mm. at least in the interim. And there are several more specific things that the court, that it was hoped that the, the court would do. For instance, I saw some people saying that the court could have ordered Israel to be willing to go to the negotiation table, could have involved South Africa and in trying to get Hamas uh, to the table in terms of like negotiating a ceasefire, but could have placed specific restrictions on the types of like attacks, the types of weapons mm -hmm. that Israel is using. And so there are all sorts of like specific actions that that were prayed for and and that the court could have done in crafting the regime. But I think because the Israeli state had already sort of like loudly and proudly said that nothing will stop us, not even The Hague, the court didn't want to overextend, overplay its hand. And so instead sort of just restated Israel's duties to prevent genocide while, you know, judging it as having plausibly, being plausibly guilty of genocidal acts and then asks them to account in this hundred year period and, and make that sort of uh, correction. So that's the compromise of the order. Right. And I, I think what's, what's really frustrating about the order for me is that the court says we don't have to grant measures that are, you know, identical to what the applicant asked for, but then there's no explanation for why, right? So the court simply says we don't have to grant identical measures, but they don't say South Africa's request for a ceasefire is inappropriate in these circumstances because of one, two, three. We can only guess, depend, you know, going off of what the arguments were like. And one of the things was, of course, the kind of special or like unique status that Gaza has because it's one, an occupied territory. Palestine is not recognized as a state. 
Hamas is not the official, you know, state or, or like government in any sense of the word. And so it, it's not the representative of a state. And so the question of self-defense uh, is just very interesting. And as Elisha said, because it was never couched as self-defense um, mm-hmm. in the way that we understand self-defense under Article 51 of the UN Charter, which relates to um, a state's inherent right to defend itself against an attack from another state. And so the, the phrase that has been used is Israel's right to defend itself, but not its right under international law to self-defense. And I, th- I, I thought that that might have played a role in, in why the court didn't, didn't order a ceasefire. But again, this is just going off, trying to construct reasons from, from what the, the order itself says. Yeah. I mean, thank you so much to both of you. I think there's so much to, not to sound like that cliche academic, but like so much to unpack out of mm-hmm. everything you both said. And namely the fact that we are guessing that the reason there was no ceasefire is because the ICJ does not have jurisdiction over Hamas. And yet the ICJ orders Hamas to to deliver the hostages, right? So mm-hmm. how does it have jurisdiction over Hamas to deliver the hostages, but uses or implicitly not having jurisdiction over Hamas to order a ceasefire? And something you had mentioned, Dan, yesterday was that it was almost as if they, they could not ask for a ceasefire because they cannot ask Hamas because they do not have jurisdiction, but also mm-hmm. Israel would never agree to a ceasefire if you are not going to order Hamas to stop you know, military action. Right, right. Mm. No, quite the catch-22. But beyond that, I think something Eli mentioned was, oh, you know, genocide is not something that one can do. You know, a small anyana genocide like Israel is trying Mm. to pretend. We're not doing it a lot, just a little bit. No, genocide is genocide, right? And I think that goes obviously back to intent. It goes back to the hardest requirement to prove for the Genocide Convention is that there is intent to genocide. And something we touched on yesterday was that the intent to to commit genocide, you can almost say, yeah, okay, cool. You know what? Sure, we killed 20,000 Palestinians. We killed all of them. But we didn't actually mean to exterminate. It's not even we didn't mean to kill the Palestinians. You can perfectly mean to kill them. But you need to be intending to exterminate the population which is an extremely high threshold. And I think Advocate Mughal did a beautiful job in handling intent. But Brian, mm-hmm. maybe you could tell us why is intent so hard to prove in the context of genocide and maybe just generally because I, intent is actually not that hard to prove on a local level, right? Before we get to you, Brian, maybe let's just speak to Johan quickly about intent on a domestic level. You know, Johan, I don't know if you have any thoughts on terms of the difference there. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's important to reflect on the fact that we do have this jurisprudence from the ICJ that establishes a high standard for intent, which Bryony will get into. But because no one can in fact know what is in the mind or heart of another individual, much less a collective of individuals that we describe as a nation, we we think of different legal tests to establish whether sufficient intent is is established to to merit a court's intervention under South African law. 
we have the principle of dolus eventualis, which is if you know that your conduct is going to result in a certain outcome um, and you proceed to act in that way anyway, then you are deemed to have intent, even if your heart does not deeply desire that, that thing. So even if Israel, with no intent to destroy, remember, part or all of a population, not, not yeah. needn't to be all, but even without that direct intent, which seems to be established from many of the many of their representatives, but even without that, knowing that damaging 60 to 70% of residential infrastructure is going to prevent people from being able to live in an area that mm. and, and proceeding to conduct yourself in that way, there's, there's a prospect that intent would be established under that standard. And so as Bryony unpacks for us the standard of intent that, that the ICJ is currently using, I think it's worth remembering that courts must respect their previous decisions, but courts, particularly courts like the ICJ, where there is no appeal process, and you know, have the opportunity to consider the practicability of their previous jurisprudence and, and to reset standards, if that is what is necessary to prevent a genocide from happening. So if we're going to look at intent in terms of the ICJ, I think what really comes to mind when they talk about being such a high bar is that we have to try and impute this idea onto the state itself. Because mm -hmm. remember, mm -hmm. when we're looking at cases in the ICJ, it's state v. state. Mm -hmm. And so what they have to do is try and prove that it is the policy of Israel mm -hmm. to kill in whole or in part the Palestinians, right? Yeah. And so that becomes quite difficult. But what South Africa did was incredibly clever, right? is by putting the direct statements of high officials, we've got Netanyahu, we've got all of his ministers mm -hmm. saying incredibly damning things about, you know, killing, killing people because of their, of their heritage and their, their sort of uh, race and religion and all that. And then they showed direct video evidence of IDF soldiers repeating those sentiments while committing crimes that result in the death or destruction or mental harm of people in Gaza, right? And so mm -hmm. while Israel tried to argue that you can't say that it's an official state policy, we showed that it didn't really matter because the people in the highest office are directly affecting the actions of the people on the ground, resulting right. in the, the different aspects of the genocide convention. And so I think that's where intent becomes difficult and they don't have to show now in this case mm. that there's 100% intent to commit genocide. They just have to show that it was plausible and that genocidal actions were plausible. And that's what, what's happened, right? We said that based on the context that we have, we've seen it going down on, on TikTok, on Twitter, it's happening live. We can show that there is at least some plausibility that there is intent from from the up up tops, and even if it's not them, the soldiers on the ground certainly think that this is the the way to go. Yeah, and I think there's not there's also something quite telling in terms of intent when the state of Israel itself tells people who are in Gaza that if they want to, you know, get away from the bombing because they. Israel is trying to bomb Hamas and get rid of Hamas and telling the members that they should go to South Gaza, they'll be safe there, and then proceeding to bomb the South right, of Gaza. Yeah. 
right? Mm. If, if that in and of itself does not show intent to er eradicate a population. I mean, also bombing refugee camps, which to mm. me just really is quite telling. But that's one part of it, looking at intent. But something else that I think both Elijah and Dan touched on is the aspect of the right to self-defense, right? So mm. we've already kind of talked about South Africa's arguments, how hard it was to prove intent and prove a lot of things. But before, again, we go to the order, let's talk about Israel's defenses, and then we'll get to the right of self-defense. Like, before we go there, let's just start that, obviously, there is no defending genocide to begin with, like right there. There's no defense, there's no justifications for genocide. Genocide, you simply cannot do it. But obviously, given that we were still at the provisional measure aspect of the hearing, we were still trying to then show that, oh, actually, beyond the fact that there's no genocide, what Israel was claiming was obviously that it's already adhering to international humanitarian laws. So, Brani, I don't know if you want to maybe run us through Israel's defenses. Okay, so Israel had in total about five official defenses, right? The one was um, self-defense, which we've touched on. The second was that there was no genocidal intent. But then the other three was that, firstly, their actions didn't count as genocidal actions. They were saying mm. that everything that they have done is within humanitarian law and everyone that has died or in, has been injured is just merely a civilian casualty of war. And as a result, that they've tried to, in their own way, mitigate any harm, and therefore it doesn't count as genocidal actions. Then the other one was that they have a lack of jurisdiction. Um, basically, they're claiming that there was no dispute here in terms of the genocide convention. And then they said that because South Africa brought up a claim that one of the issues in terms of um, the genocide convention was uh, the lack of humanitarian aid. And mm. Israel tried to say that, no, no, we have set up things like bakeries who can magically produce 20 million loaves of bread a day and therefore yeah. not say that we're withholding aid and therefore it's not genocide. And I think these are quite telling in how they <laughs> sort of found these sort of minuscule things to, to, to hang their, their heads on. But I think the main one is that they try and really say that, no, no, it's not genocide, it's just war, right? Mm. And I think that's what... Mm. Yeah. So on the question of intent, which was something that I didn't, obviously we're at the preliminary stage, so one didn't expect like an in-depth analysis of South Africa's um, case on this specific question, at least not at the stage. But what I found interesting was what the court actually quoted in that very, I think it was about three paragraphs where when deciding the question of whether Palestinians and South Africa have, you know, plausible rights that warrant protection. They discuss three quotes by the president of Israel, by the minister of defense, and by a former minister of, of infrastructure. And that's about it, right? They quote those three statements out of what was it, like seven pages uh, that South Africa submitted, um, of potentially genocidal um, statements. And what I thought was interesting was Israel's um, defense to say, well, you know, some of these were rhetorical. A lot of them were made by people who are not in positions of power, who have no say over like military and combat decisions. And as you said, the intent 
is attributed to the state. But what was interesting, which I think is an indication of how the court is thinking, is that people like Benjamin Netanyahu, who has said some things that you know a lot of us consider to have been a genocidal speech, the court doesn't pick up on those. And so it seems like the, the focus is different in terms of relating the state authority or, or according more weight to people who have actual power in the state and seems to be focused on the content of those statements themselves, right? And that was incredibly fascinating for me. And on like this issue that, you know, the bias is really high to prove intent. I thought it was interesting that I think it was immediately after the hearing, Germany announced that it was going to intervene, right? In support of Israel. And Germany, by the way, issued a joint intervention with five other states in the Myanmar case. And here's what that, I'm going to quote, here's what it says. It says, specifically addressing intent, right? It is crucial for the court to adopt a balanced approach that recognizes the special gravity of the crime of genocide without rendering the threshold for inferring genocidal intent so difficult to meet as to make findings of genocide near impossible. And so... Yes, Germany is there right now on this other case saying, actually, the court's standard might be too high and might actually lead to actual genocides being, you know, carried out in real time with no way of stopping it because the threshold is so high. And it'll be interesting, obviously, as as the case unfolds over the next couple of years to see whether this argument is actually carried through and how, or if South Africa actually will adopt a similar position to say, hang on, these are things that are happening and these are the expressed views of Israel's leaders and they're leading to very gruesome, very just terrible atrocity crimes. And yet you are holding us to a standard that makes it almost impossible to prove that it is genocide, right? And just as, 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 as a last throwaway comment and maybe something to think about and to pick up on this is to say that this like focus on genocide and placing it as the highest or the worst crime humans can commit and therefore privileging uh, this requirement of intent maybe allows for greater abuses to take place while the perpetrators skirt around the legalities and make sure that they are not caught, they don't fall within the, the, the provisions of the Genocide Convention. And so it'll be interesting to think about whether or not it's worth really staking our, like your whole case on the idea that it is only really that bad if it's genocide. And I, I think that's, that, that's something that we should think about a bit more. Yeah, I mean, Elisha, I don't know if you want to add anything on that as well. Yeah, I was going to say, I think Johan made uh, a really important uh, point that it's actually, you know, the courts, the ICJ, which have sort of accepted and given uh, a development to this notion of intent being about it being a state policy. And so like Israel and uh, Germany, are like, are like, oh, we're aghast when you consider that the Genocide Convention arose out of like 
that genocide against the Jewish people and now to accuse the Jewish state of genocide is like absurd, almost as if for to 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 be to be able to like fall within the bounds of genocide, you'd have to like rebrand as the genocide party mm. or like every bullet that is fired, you declare mm. in the name of genocide or in furtherance yeah. of genocide. But but that so it's it, it's sort of like something that Israel will will try and promote something that the courts have to some degree accepted. But I think Johan made a good point that the actual wording of the convention itself is quite plain in terms of like what it describes as being prohibited. And you know, and when you talk about attempts to destroy in whole or in part a particular people in this instance, the Palestinians of Gaza, attempts to displace them in an instance where over 80% of the population has already been uh, displaced. Ion said that 70% of like residential infrastructure has been destroyed, rendering it really difficult for the preventing births, uh, those sorts of things. Those are plain, simple actions of which it would seem you, if you would read that, you would say, well, actually that's not so far-fetched and it's yeah. not so much stretch, but then which is why it's so interesting about how Israel has still just been like so brazen on all of the statements, as Dan mentioned, is that like every single day you have, you know, the live streaming and broadcasting of like war crimes and, mm. and human rights violations, but they've not even done things like discipline the military, restrict phone use, mm. they've not punished a single soldier, not actually distance themselves from any of the extreme statements about how all the Palestinians leave, mm. about how they're human animals. Um, if anything, like Israel has continuously aligned itself with the most brazen meaning of intent, but then still continues to say, don't believe the evidence of your ears and eyes. We said, kill them all. That's not yeah. what we meant, even though it's what we were doing. And, yeah. and when it's been found that even the bombing campaigns are indiscriminate, mm. that they uh, do not like uh, sufficiently differentiate between the supposed uh, military target, which is Hamas, and the Palestinians who are, are being exterminated in this instance. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, yeah, it's, a, it's important to uh, uh, re uh, reject or also sort of like problematize mm. this idea of genocide as an almost impossible bar mm. as one is unfolding in quite clear terms. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely love that you mentioned that because the whole time I kept thinking to myself, if the threshold of intent is high, is so high that even the most brazen acts of war that we have seen beyond acts of war, you know, crimes against humanity that we are seeing do not meet the genocide convention, then I cannot even think of a situation that is not exactly like the Holocaust day to day, every single moment that will meet this. Just because the genocide convention is based on the Holocaust doesn't mean every single genocide that is happening afterwards will look exactly like the Holocaust. It's almost mm. like that idea now once you produce a manifesto that is signed by every single member of the Israeli government that says that, oh, this is precisely what we intend to do, which is an insane requirement to even ask of people. But also just to say that, just to remind everyone that the Holocaust happened before the creation of the international law community as it is mm. today. Right? Yeah, and that, yeah. is that because of that, genocides will not look exactly the same anymore. You cannot expect that genocides will be, you know, exactly the same, not as, but not as brazen as it will be, but still 
it we need to account for these changes, right? And that's exactly what Elijah was talking about. Like we can have Netanyahu tweet that not even the Hague will stop us. Stop you from what? Stop yeah. you from what? You know, like, we, we, we can all see it's it's like we're being gaslit communally as people mm -hmm. to not kind of see what is going on. Sorry, Dan, you wanted to maybe add to that as well. Yeah, I think I think you just made a really important point that the genocide convention is a response to the Holocaust. Right. It's about preventing killing on that scale. And the idea that if it isn't as bad as the Holocaust, then it's not genocide. It's, it's completely antithetical to what the Genocide Convention is meant to do. And I, I, I wonder if the court like, took consideration of the Bosnian genocide, right, mm -hmm. where they declined to issue provisional measures. And obviously we're in a different position, but the, the, the effectiveness of the measures that are granted is, is in question right now. But they declined in that case to issue provisional measures. And then what happened? There was a genocide. And it's like, how do we, how do we just, how do we square that circle, right? The, mm -hmm. the idea that genocide is a really bad but that there are there are ways of like finding or, or of seeing what could potentially lead or become a genocide and being able to stop it, but still placing yep. the bar so high that it is almost impossible to meet. Yeah, I mean, I think this perfectly segues us into the next question. And it, it relates directly to the fact that like, oh, genocide is so bad. Don't you dare accuse someone of genocide. It's not no. don't you dare commit it. Don't you dare accuse someone of genocide. That's the real mm. crime here. And also it it when you mentioned the Bosnian genocide, which precisely reminded me of the fact that like, I think that's why we got provisional measures because they fucked up so badly with Bosnia mm. and they cannot possibly have that happen again. And that actually leads me to my next question for Bryony. That is, when I read the order, it kind of screamed to me that the ICJ is trying not to corner itself into having to say later when it eventually has to have a judgment on whether there's a genocide, that there is a genocide. So I wonder if you had any thoughts on that. Obviously, we cannot guess what's in the mind of the judges. But when, when I read it, it just came across as we're going to do the bare minimum that we can do so that this doesn't necessarily go on to the extent that it's going on, which then leads me to part two of the question, which we can get to as well, that Eli alluded to. Once you've found that there is a plausibility of a genocide, how do you then, one, not order a ceasefire, and two, tell them that they have a month to fix this shit and then come back? So... Right, so a couple of things. So first of all, let's talk about what provisional measures are. So provisional measures are specifically supposed to help, as you say, prevent the genocide that we think might be coming our way, right? And so what the court really needed to do was look at whether, as you say, was it plausible? And so they say, based on the Ukraine-Russia case and the Gambit-Myanmar uh, case, that when we're looking at provisional measures, you have to prove certain things. You have to prove that it's urgent, that it's plausible, and that if nothing happens, there will be irreparable harm, right? And South Africa managed to prove all of that through our statements, through our oral arguments, uh, and they note that. And the, the court actually specifically says that it considers the situation in Gaza so catastrophic that without rendering these, these provisional measures that they, they can only see irreparable and serious harm coming about, right? 
And then the second thing is when it comes to the order itself. So they didn't order a ceasefire. They didn't specifically say that. And they first make note of the fact that when they make a decision in these provisional measure judgments, they're not making any substantive decisions, right? Nothing is done on merit. This is all procedural and, and, and sort of preliminary, right? And so I think what they were trying to do was try to be very careful so that they don't accidentally, as you say, corner themselves into uh, one way or another in the future case that will be coming. And this case is going to take years, right? When it comes to deciding ICJ cases and genocide cases, it's going to be years and years and years. And so one of the provisional measures was actually that Israel has to preserve any evidence of what they are doing to then show and use in that case, which was very important, right? But they also then said, we have to take all reasonable measures not to commit genocidal acts. And then the military have to stop committing any forms of these acts. They can't kill people, they can't prevent births, all of this shit, right? And that, I think, is difficult to conceptualize without a ceasefire. Because then you Mm. read that last provisional measure, which was also they have to include more humanitarian aid. And the reason why they don't have more humanitarian aid at this point is because of the continuing bombardment and the danger to the aid workers, right? They cannot get there without fear of loss of life. So how do we have these provisional measures, which they've now ordered without the ceasefire? And I think that's going to be a question that comes up a lot in terms of whether Israel is now adhering to this um, order. Um, And that's when you were referring to they have a month to fix it. So that's uh, referring to the report that they have to now put together. They have a month to look at what they're doing and allegedly sort of de-escalate themselves to a point where they're not committing these plausibly genocidal acts and then go back to the ICJ and to South Africa and say, listen, look, we're trying, right? But Israel are just going to say that, but, you know, we're just adhering to international law. We're not committing genocidal acts anyway. So we've adhered. So then what, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the court was actually very clever in providing this um, report because now that is a, a way for South Africa to then collect evidence to then use the mechanisms that's available to them when inevitably Israel doesn't adhere to the order, which they've said they're not going to do, right? And for people who don't know, when you don't adhere to an ICJ order, you can't appeal, you can't ask for a contempt of court order like you would have in a domestic setting. What happens is the state, in this case, South Africa, will go to the Security Council and ask for them to do a resolution to enforce measures to help force Israel to comply, right? And these measures can be anything from military involvement to asking states to unfund the Israel military or any other ways in which they're funding Israel. But then on the other hand, the issue with the Security Council is that we have the five veto uh, states, one of which is the USA. And of course, we know the USA is currently Israel's biggest supporter. And so international lawyers alike all across uh, Twitter and the, the, the platforms are saying, you know, it's very likely that should it go to the uh, Security Council, a veto will come and then what? And that's going to cause a real problem and a major question for the rule of law in terms of international law. So I think on that particular, like the second provisional measure, which says, the state of Israel shall ensure with the media defect that its military does not commit any acts described in the first 
one, right? Which says Israel shall, in accordance with its obligations under the, the Genocide Convention, take all measures to prevent the commission of all acts within the scope of Article 2. And that within the scope, so I want to ask a question about the relationship between these two measures, the one that says, with immediate effect, you cannot commit any of these acts. And then the first one that says, the act within the scope of Article 2. Again, the question of genocidal intent, right? Israel could simply say, yes, we're killing... 200 Palestinians every day, but we have no intention to destroy Palestinians in Gaza as a group, right? And so it's it, how do these two operate? Because the one seems, the second one seems much stronger than the first. And, and I'm wondering about like, what is the relationship between the two and how do you, how do you put them into practice as Israel and then report back? to the court about, you know, what it is you've been doing. Yeah, I I just wanted to say that it will be, it seems to me impossible for Israel to comply without um, stopping its bombing campaign, its indiscriminate bombing campaign. It clearly is not doing that. 165 more Palestinians were killed in the last 24 hours. So it, it continues uh, it, to conduct it. And meanwhile, Israel and United States, based on Israeli intelligence, United States has stopped funding, has frozen funding for the UN yep. agency that is providing mm-hmm. care yeah. for Palestinians. Yep. And so yep. almost in reaction to this, the genocide has intensified. Mm. And that's where it will be an interesting thing to see what is made following this report from Israel and South Africa's response. We all need to be working as civil society and with other states to be helping South Africa to have the most powerful response possible to carefully document each and every act of genocide, each breach of the order. But then what what will the ICJ make of it? Bryony rightfully says the ICJ will it not itself enforce the order that goes to the Security Council, but can the ICJ be encouraged to make a finding that in fact Israel has breached this order because it's going to deny that it has. Can the Mm. ICJ be encouraged or convinced following this extensive documentation of violation of the order that we're going to have to shift its order to, to say, stop this military campaign? And going forward, you know, while I think it was fairly flimsy to say that a, the, the military campaign can continue because ICJ can't bind a non-state entity now that Hamas has publicly undertaken to comply with any ceasefire order. Mm-hmm. Can the ICJ be convinced to have, make a more robust order that even if ultimately the U.S. continues to shield Israel from formal consequences, that a clear finding that there's been a violation of the order is something we can use politically and uh, across the world to, to push for the end of this genocide. So I want to stay a little bit on on the the issue of the response, right? And you might have seen immediately after the the order came out, news reports were coming out, and I think it was maybe the Huffington Post that said, you know, the U.S. had a coordinated plan, a response to because they expected the provisional measures to be issued, and along with the U.K., Canada, mm-hmm. Australia, and mm-hmm. Italy they then paused funding 
for this UN agency. And because the story here is that 12 staff members of this agency are alleged based on US intelligence to have been part of the, the October 7 attacks, right? But as a lot of people have pointed out, one, those 12 people have been now fired pending investigation. But then two, this is an agency that employs 30,000 people. Right, yeah. it's thirty thousand people. It's 12, 12 people out of out of, out of thirty thousand people who do the indispensable work of providing aid, water, food, healthcare to wounded uh, civilians. But I, I I want to pose the question whether you know is this not a form of collective punishment, at least on the parts of these states that have, you know, withdrawn funding? And is it not a, not even a complicity, but an actual, like an active participation in the genocide to ensure, I mean, they're undermining the order, right? They're undermining the order that there should be more humanitarian aid and humanitarian assistance going to Gaza. The agency that is doing that is now, you know, the funding is going to dry up. And and these are like, the biggest funders, yeah. And I think, you know, that sort of like deplorable uh, behavior is actually consistent with the pattern of like how Israel and her allies had been conducting themselves with such like rank impunity since uh, this this, this es- escalation began and the way that they've conducted this war, but also in the many years of increasing radicalization that came before, which is why... The order, so Johan points out that because it's a adversarial system that South Africa can perhaps play a role in reporting and making sure that there's actual sort of like supervision to try and improve Israel's behavior and curtail them. But what the court in effect did was almost give Israel the benefit of the doubt to say that like you as a party bring yourselves in order, bring yourselves in line, uh, regularize your behaviors, punish the people who misbehave, get your house in order, but allowing them to do so without actually, uh, you know, expelling them from Gaza or, 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 or ordering them to cease immediately. And you're trusting Israel to to this reporting function of the steps that it's taken, the same, the same, the same regime which has killed so many journalists precisely because they don't yep. want clarity and oversight over, you know, the the, the atrocities that are being committed. I think it, it, it's fair to say that with the sort of conduct um, uh, which is uh, just contemptuous of uh, international law, that Israel had sacrificed the privilege uh, to be able to assert that it has the right to continue its operations as it sees fit, uh, to hunt down and eradicate its enemies and at, at whatever cost. And I think that's particularly why now at the emergency stage, the provisional measures which were actually sought, but that the court stopped short of granting for whatever reason were so, so, so completely appropriate. And, yeah. and that's why it's understandable that so many people and especially Palestinians are have, have in fact well in fact very disappointed with the outcome yeah, um, absolutely. even though uh, others wanted to brand it a victory because the court mm. accepted everything South Africa said on plausibility yeah and I think on an editorial note it's actually 
made me really sad the difference between the episode of yesterday and today which is in the space of less than 24 hours we were quite hopeful yesterday that this would be a huge change in the way the international community you know comports themselves the global north only to overnight then see that you know more than it's more than the us the germany which is the biggest funder by the way of the unrwa has decided to pull out as well all the global north powers are pulling out funding out of like you mentioned the only human rights aid agency that is on the ground right and it's absolutely disheartening because yesterday this episode ended on such a positive note that we might be seeing you know the moral compass of the global north changing only to say no fuck that actually they decided mm-hmm. to double down and remove funding which is even that that we're not even putting it it's not even just israel now blocking actual aid from happening there won't even be aid we can't even contemplate it and i want to point out to the irony that the unrw is the united nations relief and works agency for palestine refugees refugees mm. brought about by israeli military action right so that that's the organization that was giving aid to all of the people in palestine mostly as dan pointed out employing so many people so many palestinians right but again it goes mm-hmm. back to israel targeting palestinians as human beings mm-hmm. and painting them as all being part of hamas and all not being worthy of living a life and in the end as elisha pointed out we've seen a lot of palestinians very disheartened by the icj judgment and a lot of ac- international law academics and academics generally were kind of telling them like oh no this is a big victory but how is it a victory when you're still getting bombed on the ground and you're still going to, you see children starving i saw um a stat that said that if you were to attend the funeral of every single palestinian children that has died it would take you 27 years that's to put it into context the the unicef uh, released their numbers and they said more children have died during this um uh, conflict in gaza um than all children in modern wars since they started recording modern wars right so like the last 30 years right that's a staggering amount of children yeah. and it's it's quite disheartening and then you have things like these new acronyms being invented yeah. you know they brought mm. it up during the african um oral arguments where they're like we have to invent a whole new category for wounded children with no surviving relatives and mm. that's going to have a lasting impact on these children for the rest of their lives right yeah. like it's 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 again really i think points to another aspect of genocide which is obviously trying to exterminate children trying to exterminate upcoming populations of the same people right and i wanted to to point out the the change in tone of the episode because i think a lot of us when the ruling came out we were really happy mostly because 5 years ago you wouldn't even dare say anything against zionism because you would be pointed out mm. as some antisemitic you wouldn't dare say anything against israel and you wouldn't even hope for an institution to even entertain something like that against israel let alone getting provisional measures right i think a lot of us skeptics and, and pessimists thought it would get kicked out on jurisdiction on some arbitrary level right but mm. the fact that we got provisional measures we were really happy about that and i i I'm I'm sad that all of you can't hear but Johan had said something quite profound about how maybe international law can actually you know be changing over the years now with this starting and I'm hoping that it's still the case but I'm extremely you know the the gift that says disappointed but not surprised that's exactly mm-hmm. how I felt for the global north pulling out funding 
from the humanitarian aid. But I also want to take this moment just to quickly kind of say that, you know, we, we get the privilege to be here with our friends, with people who we love and talk about something like that. And even then, it's still hard to talk about. It's still really emotionally draining to be thinking about that. So we can't even imagine being in Palestine or being a Palestinian outside of Palestine and knowing that, you know, you have to leave. Otherwise, you will not survive. But knowing that also you don't want to leave because that's the whole point of this genocide that eventually everyone either dies or leaves this place so that it doesn't exist anymore. Johan? Yeah, I just wanted to say that Israel is on trial for genocide and and we had the first phase of that trial with the consideration of provisional measures. And now, now I think it's very important that, that the ICJ appreciate that it is on trial for its validity as a global institution. We, we discuss international law often and, and what power it has. You know, in my view, international law is a remarkably powerful tool to entrench the power of, of, of the powerful. And the question has been, is it worth preserving some of the institutions of the global north to constrain that power to to build towards a more just and a better world where a genocide of palestinians counts and and can actually be addressed and whether it can be aligned with a world where every human life in fact matters equally as opposed to global north lines mattering disproportionately. And I think we need to be watching very carefully. I don't think there's cause for giving up hope at this early stage. The US uh, and others have decided to intensify their support for this genocide by slashing support to the UNRWA. But there are movements across the global south, the global north, in Palestine, in Israel, in the United States, in South Africa, to stand up and say that this is unacceptable. It's not just the bombing, it's it's the humanitarian aid. And, and we need to continue every possible effort to stand in solidarity and, and using this tool and allowing the ICJ the, the space to say that, that the current mechanisms stop genocide to prevent genocide actually matter and worth using. But if not, to be envisioning different worlds where, where genocide is stopped. Yeah, I mean, and also something in addition to what you've said now, Johan, something you pointed out yesterday as well, which I thought was really powerful, is it's not the law that stopped the Holocaust, right? You you mentioned yeah. that yesterday. And I don't think the law ever will stop a genocide just generally. So I think you're absolutely right. It's time for all of us to mobilize and hopefully remain also attentive to what people on the ground keep telling us they need, right? I think it's extremely yeah. performative for us to just be celebrating the law and ICJ and discarding what people on the ground really feel about it, you know, that they feel betrayed by the institution, that the least that could have been done is at least order a fucking ceasefire. And having mm. now, you know, using the law, using all these words to say why we cannot do a ceasefire because this is blah, 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 blah. And in the end, just kind of, you know, pandering to Israel still, but something we did touch on yesterday, and I do want to give the opportunity to any of you to maybe add something or just give a comment before I actually say 
the the before I tie the episode up because I do want to mention something else as well. I don't know if anyone. Yeah, I I just also want to say that it it is important not not to not to despair because yeah. even though you've seen the reaction of the powerful like doubling down on these atrocities they do so undemocratically i think you've seen like more popular support and more popular awareness around like the plight and the cause of like the pa- palestinian people than ever so since the establishment of israel and i think because i'm reminded of like the quote by palestinian poet mom who says that we suffer from an incurable malady hope as long as it's possible for the cause of Palestine to remain hopeful, then it's imperative that all of us around the world continue to care, continue being willing to like speak the truth, even in the face of power, and to struggle in what ways we can. And the, the, the legal uh, was an example of that, was an example of a, a sort of solidarity um, yeah. and principled risk of yeah. evil. Uh, which I think uh, we can all be proud of. But sadly, as as one of the lawyers said in the arguments, that it, it feels like the question of our time will be, well, where was I during the time the genocide of the Palestinians? And I hope that everyone who listens and whoever you're able to reach c- continues to stand on the side of justice. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, look, I spoke a lot yesterday about how this was a moral victory and Israel's impunity and the kind of ignorance that that the West had adopted over the years in in relation to Israel's conduct in the Palestinian occupied territories had broken and that, you know, things were now going to change. And I am quite bummed to see that, you know, it doesn't look like things are changing. And I guess it's, you know, there's this quote, and we were talking about children earlier by James Baldwin, where he says, the children are ours anywhere in the world, right? That anyone who doesn't see a child as their own, regardless of who that child is, what nationality, what religion, isn't capable of morality, right? Mm. And the absolute like, heartbreaking truth is that the casualties in Gaza are mainly children. And now these North, these global North countries are essentially ensuring that Israel continues to kill even more children um, yeah. because they are incapable of, of, of viewing, and this is sad, but of viewing Palestinian life as worthy, as equal, as dignified, as deserving of protection. Yeah. I did want to... I did want to say that um, I think in addition to the pessimistic truth of a lot of things, I think um, Eli and Johan's uh, messages were quite powerful and very inspiring. And it did kind of also remind me that things have changed. I mean, I think this will be relatable for a lot of Muslim for a lot of Muslims out there, but I think I've never grown up with a free Palestine, obviously. So, but I've grown up very conscious of the plight that mm-hmm. Palestinians have faced. But 
we have really we and i mean we as all of us as a people who are against what's going on in palestine have e- have really been able to organize and mobilize on a different level that i have seen yeah. over my whole yeah. life i have never seen the amount of race consciousness about what's going on in palestine and i think palestinians can also say for themselves that they've never felt so much solidarity over what mm-hmm. happened and i think it's awful terribly awful that this has been going on for so long and this is what it takes to get so much solidarity but i can definitely say that it's way less dangerous for people even out of palestine to be supportive of palestine mm. now than it used to be back then so mm. i can remain appreciative of that and again we kind of touched on that yesterday but even just having an institution in the global north put on paper that what israel is doing right now is as close as we can get to calling it a genocide at this mm. moment we would have never seen that before so obviously we're all hopeful that this actually makes a material difference in people's lives on the ground in palestine but we are still cognizant that it it has taken us a lot to even get here and again i've mentioned this yesterday but it's absolutely beautiful that it was south africa who was the the state that went mm. to this north institution and said what's going on in 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 gaza and palestine broadly is unacceptable and i just want us to keep on our toes because i think the one thing that stuck with me is that obviously israel has been using hamas as the reason for attacking gaza the whole time but as as one of the the one of the more famous palestinian philosophers had pointed out is if you want to know what israel does in palestine without the presence of hamas then just look at the west bank and we're still mm. waiting for that opinion on the west bank because what's happening in the west bank is equally as awful so i think this just really reminds us that there's you know what's going on right now needs a lot of our attention a lot of our mobilization so i will call on to all our listeners and i made this joke yesterday whether you like us or not to actually just go out there and take a stand against what's happening in israel and just remember that that unfortunately the people who are bearing the brunt of this are children who have no idea what they even did to deserve to be born yeah. in these circumstances so yeah it, this was a very hard episode to film again mostly because we had to film again again to begin with but also <laughs> hard episode to do because it's a really mm. really really heartbreaking topic so we're getting to talk about it with our loved ones in the comfort of our homes we cannot even imagine what it's like to actually be going through all of this and not only in Palestine but also in Yemen also in Congo also in yeah. many other countries that are facing the same things but On that sad note, I think we should probably close the episode but just say that it's good to be back and it's always good to be able to speak about important topics and use our voices and our platforms to speak about yeah. all of these things. Special thank you to Bryony for taking the time as an expert mm-hmm. to come and see us. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, we're really grateful to have people with expert knowledge on things talking to all us all the rest of us. Here but also to our other friends Dan, Eli, Johan, thank you for joining and we're looking forward to being back. It's good right? to be back. We are so back. We are so back. <laughs> for real this time you can see it's recorded so I think we're safe. If you guys don't see the episode then we're genuinely being sabotaged. Hey.